Hello. Hello. Uh, welcome back to the Weirdest Thing podcast. I am Scotty Milder. Yes, I am Amelia Ampuero, and we are your hosts, and we are coming at you hot and fresh for a daytime recording. <laughs> I know, for once. Not just not just a daytime recording, a morning daytime yeah. recording. Has this ever happened before? I don't think so. I yeah. think in the, in the 18 seasons and two years of the Weirdest Thing podcast... <laughs> This is the first uh, morning recording that we have possibly done. It's certainly the only one I remember. I'm sh- yeah, maybe there was a. It was funny. I was looking through old episodes recently, and I was like, "What? We did an episode on that? Like this?" <laughs> Yeah, there's like specific what? episodes that I like. I'll I'll be looking through the thing and I'll be like, wait, when? What was what? When? What was that? I've there's <laughs> definitely been some ones that I've like memory hold. Yeah, that yeah. Uh, I like I did them and then not only forgot that we did them, but forgot all of the information that I learned right. while doing <laughs> the research for that thing. It's always kind of fun to go back and like listen to those though, because then you it's like you're learning shit all over again. You're learning shit all over again. The more you know, do 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 do. Awesome. Right. Well, we want to we want to dive right in yeah so we should say i believe unless you changed your story without telling me these are the stories we had planned to do last time yes <laughs> before we got real movie excited and talked right about before movie. we were like sorry we have to talk about cocaine bear <laughs> right. and finally talk about the menu yeah yes so, uh, so here we go makeup yeah. episode makeup episodes we get extra credit um <laughs> okay so i'm gonna set a bit of a scene for you right uh okay. we're we're gonna be talking about we're gonna dive into the 1970s which was like a crazy fucking time oh yeah i mean i think i don't know if everybody like really thinks about it that way maybe because we were coming off of the 60s and the 60s were like you couldn't have packed more into that decade yeah but they were wild like yes i think the 70s and i am i think if i know your story this is a little bit what you get into it was like the shitty hangover from the weird fucking drunken high of the 60s because like the 70s was just really dark and everyone was was angry and like mad at each other i mean i I think there's a lot of things going on now that feel like what you hear about the 70s. Yeah. Someone in some of the research that I had uh, had said that if if the 60s were like, you know, what everybody was doing when they were on LSD, the 70s (laughs) was whatever, but was the same thing, but on cocaine. Right, right. And that's so I think that's that's apropos as well. But just to give our listeners an idea so what you had in the 1970s, you had the post-war economic boom was mm-hmm. finally starting to peter out. The Vietnam right. War was happening. Computers were becoming portable and accessible because, you mm-hmm. know, before that they took up like a city block. Right. Um, an insane amount of coups were happening all over the world. Mm-hmm. The Munich massacre took place at the 1970s. Olympics. Yeah. Uh, we had a gas crisis. Nixon fucking resigned. Serial killers were like terrorizing the entire country. Mm-hmm. This was kind of like the start of the whole serial killer boom in terms of it like being in like public consciousness, I think. 
I think, and I think it was the type of, I mean, you know, you and I have talked about this and you and me and my brother have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the fuck was happening (laughs) in California, especially during this time, because there, it was just, it was so many serial killers. Yeah. Like if if you know of a serial killer, they were active during the 1970s. Um, But we also had second wave feminism was spreading across the globe. You had Mm -hmm. an influx of a lot of non monarchy female leaders in different countries. Right. Uh, Sexual revolution was raging. The civil rights movement of the 1960s was beginning to fracture. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of all of this, you had the music. Yeah. So the early 1970s saw the continued popularity of musicians and bands that had been popular in the 50s and 60s. And this is stuff like Elvis, Johnny Cash, Mm -hmm. um, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan. But you also had bands like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin that were like exploding onto the scene. The Beatles broke up in the 1970s, but each of the four of them immediately released highly successful solo albums. There was also, you know, you were getting a lot of singer songwriters like Elton John and James Mm -hmm. Taylor. Funk began to emerge from soul music. And this is so... I'm sure Scotty knows this, but funk is a music with a greater emphasis on beats. It's influenced right. by R&B and jazz and psychedelic rock. But we also saw the rapid commercialization of music. The term corporate rock came out during the 1970s. And this mm-hmm. is <laughs> this is music that was created by music labels to produce simple radio friendly shit instead of like the deeply political, deeply like right. Feeling music of well, the Well, I just think of like, like you know, the '60s was all like, you know, protest music and you yes, know, deeply and like, political. Right, the Beatles being super fucking weird, and then like the '70s to me is like fog hat. You know, it's like foreigner. <laughs> shit like yeah, that. when we're talking about, um, when we're talking about corporate rock, we're talking about like sticks mm-hmm. and. Ario Speedwagon, which mm-hmm. I fucking love. Oh, I mean, you know, I, that. you know, I love me a good stick song, particularly in karaoke. <laughs> Is that what we would also? It feels like there's some overlap with like yacht rock, right? Oh, for sure, for sure, I mean, right? I think yacht rock uh, is like, now corporate is a, rock. Yeah, well, yacht rock kind of was a little bit later because it was like really got into the soft rock stuff. But like, oh, right? Yes, yes, yes. But yes, like, yes. I think I think all this shit like set the table for yacht rock. Yeah, I dad think it, rock. What you call dad rock now? And full yeah. disclosure, I love all of that shit. <laughs> I love all of it too. Yeah. You know, and this was the really like, this was the really interesting thing about doing the research for this is just to like, because you also had like Fleetwood Mac was losing their minds. They released, mm-hmm. they released rumors right. during this time period. Like there was so much well, happening in, in music during this decade. I just, I have to throw out a mention of my favorite band of all time, uh, Pink Floyd. Like this was the height of Pink Floyd. Was yeah, yeah. Early, well, kind of mid to late seventies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting time for music. And then in the middle of all of this, all of this chaos and this turmoil that we were dealing with, like as a human race, and the music that was happening all over the place in the middle of this wacky decade, disco emerged. Mm-hmm. So 
I'm going to tell you the actually somewhat surprising story behind Disco Demolition Night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sources for this are Wikipedia, The Guardian, an episode of the podcast You're Wrong About, mm. an article from Vice.com, and an episode of the podcast Undone. Both of the podcasts are really great. They go into what I'm going to talk about in depth. So you can also check those out afterwards. Sidebar, before I get started, somebody told me recently that they had had a conversation with somebody who had said that the last decade was the best decade for music, Mm -hmm. that it was the most influential, the most impactful decade. And I guess they mean like the 20, I don't know if they mean like, I guess they mean like the 2010s. Yeah, I've... (laughs) And I was like, look, 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 like this isn't me trying to be like, you kids get off of my lawn. I don't know how you can look at the 1960s and 1970s and say that the 2010s were more impactful or influential than either of those decades. I mean, I mean, I guess it remains to be seen. We'll see if like Uh, Taylor Swift becomes the next Beatles or whatever. But like... (laughs) Uh, you you guys missed. <laughs> Amelia just deflated like a balloon when I said that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I don't. Yep. If you like Taylor Swift, that's awesome. <laughs> I do not. Yeah. No, but I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that's a fairly ridiculous statement. I think right. Well, I mean, even, even like the 90s, like the late 80s, early 90s with the rise of grunge and like rap music and stuff, you know, like I just, I, I, I think it's a ridiculous statement. I think it's a ridiculous <laughs> statement. I, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a ridiculous statement. Okay. So there we go. I'm also going to state right here that I'm not going to get into the history of disco because it's actually a story that spans like decades and continents. And it's and- really, interesting it's It's super super interesting super fascinating but like i don't want to take you back to like paris in the 1930s (laughs) to talk about fucking disco demolition night that would be like weirdest thing style to do that it would but this is a perfect example of i think this is what's interesting again 18 seasons and two years into this podcast (laughs) that like i am starting to figure out where the rabbit holes are for myself Mm -hmm. and i'm like i'm starting to be like yes that is interesting and maybe i can come back and do an episode about right. that later we don't need to do it all in no one but go. yeah like <laughs> yeah you, i'm hoping this i'm hoping for our listeners this spurns you to be curious and to go look this stuff up for yourself mm-hmm. because it is it actually is like fascinating right but i'm not going to get into it but what you do need to know about disco for the story is that in the u.s disco music was mostly created by black brown and gay people Mm -hmm. and it was mostly created for black brown and queer people Mm -hmm. um a lot of disco hits came from black women and were anthems for queer culture you know you've got songs like gloria gaynor's i will survive sister sledges we are family diana ross is coming i mean it's clearly Mm -hmm. like clearly these are are you know the rallying cries of a community that was only 10 years out from the stonewall riots right so this music which is rooted in black and latin american music and gay culture eventually becomes mainstream so you've got artists like barry manilow doing disco hits Mm -hmm. you've got rock artists like the rolling stones and rod stewart doing quote unquote disco songs kiss kiss Kiss. song yep yeah 
So even though the roots of disco are decidedly not white or straight, the genre mm-hmm. gains popularity, especially with the release of the movie Saturday Night Fever, right. starring John Travolta and featuring music by the Bee Gees. Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just like drop this little seed and then come back to it. You've obviously seen oh, Saturday yeah. Night Fever. Yeah. So, Scotty, you know that the movie does a lot to emphasize that Travolta's character, Tony Monero, is straight. Mm-hmm. He is a straight man who likes sex with straight women. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's just telegraphing that from, like, the jump. Right. It is yeah. just like, I am a straight fucking mm-hmm. man. Like I said, we'll come back to that. Okay. So this is what's going on. You've got you've also got stuff that like disco is like I said it's starting to permeate the culture. You've got radio stations that are like, you know, they used to be rock stations but now they're like sorry, we're turning into disco stations. You've got live music venues that are now turning into discotheques. Uh, disco starts like Star, there's like a Star Wars disco album. Mm. Oh <laughs> God, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. I think Donald Duck does a disco duck. Yeah, was that Dom, Donald? Was it Donald? It was it I, Donald or Daffy? I don't know. One of the ducks. It's, it's one of the ducks. There's even like disco about like breakfast cereals and stuff. Like it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. I also want to say that within the story, there's probably like men's three groups of people you've got the people that are like whatever i don't really care like there's disco it doesn't like i I live my life then you've got the people that are like i don't like it because i don't like the music i disco had a lot of like synthesizers and stuff like that so there were people that were like i find this music like kind of plasticky sounding and it's just not my thing and then you had (laughs) the loud bottom third (laughs) <laughs> which I will get into. Uh-huh. Um, and here in our here is the point in our story where a man named Steve Dahl enters from stage left. So Steve Dahl okay. is a 24 year old Chicagoan. He has been working as a DJ for WDAI when he was fired on Christmas Eve of 1978 <laughs> when the radio station switched from rock to disco. Mm-hmm. Uh, he found a new DJ gig at rival station WLUP, also known as The Loop. And there, Dahl created the insane coho lips and it was an anti-disco army of his listeners mm. ordinary organized around the simple idea of disco sucks right doll says that the cohos were quote locked in a war dedicated to the eradication of the dreaded musical disease known as disco <laughs> look <laughs> <laughs> again you can dislike disco there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with disliking disco but when you start talking about something that is not a disease as a disease Mm -hmm. and saying that you need to eradicate it we start getting into some not so coded coded language right right like scotty has a very like "Mm -hmm," look (laughs) about this because this is again we're talking about music you could just not listen to it well, I mean, it, it just it goes back to your rant from last time mm-hmm. about like just fucking let people enjoy things. Like, and I'll get into my whole thing about disco when you're done. But like, mm-hmm. and and like you said, it you're gonna get into it, so I don't want to say too much. But like, it's coded about some things that clearly 
clearly have nothing to do with the music. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Dahl organizes, uh, or he organizes a bunch of like anti-disco events, many of which became unruly and got out of control. Dahl and the co-host showed up in the thousands to clubs that had switched from rock to disco. They occupied a teen disco in the Chicago suburbs. Mm. Like, man, it's the fucking 70s and you're occupied, like it's a place where teens can go to like dance and fucking kids. Yeah, it's kids. Like, dude, he urged his listeners to throw marshmallows at a WDAI promotional van. Yeah, that's not coded at all. Like, hmm, no subtext. No subtext. Exactly. Uh, when Van McCoy, who is responsible for the hustle, Mm -hmm. died, Dahl destroyed the album on air. Jesus. He even released a Do You Think I'm Disco song, and it was a parody of Rod Stewart's Do You Think I'm Sexy. Mm -hmm. Put a pin in that. We'll also come back to that. We also need to touch on baseball in the 1970s. (laughs) I have no idea what was going on, but baseball was struggling in the 70s. Oh, yeah. well, I mean. Do you know why? A little bit. Like, I I don't want to go into, because I already did two long or three long ass baseball episodes way back when. But like, I mean, really, it, it amounts to like just some pretty basic changes and culture with like baseball really being like kind of like the greatest generation sport you know it's like Uh, very world war ii era you know and then like we're just getting to a point where like it's a rejection of everything that's like about our grandparents or our parents you know so this is why like basketball is getting big you know football football had always been big but football's getting bigger okay and also i think like tv i love watching baseball on tv but like a lot of people don't and then you have these like faster pace sports, you know, yeah. that are just more exciting. So yeah. I mean it's a lot of a lot of stuff, but Okay. There we go. Thank you for that supplemental mm-hmm. knowledge. So yeah, so baseball was really struggling in the 1970s and a lot of teams were trying to come up with ways to like, you know, incentivize people. Mm-hmm to come to watch the games. Right. Um, Disco Demolition Night takes place in 1979. We are five years out from the infamous 10 cent beer night in Cleveland, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which if you don't know that story, go and look it up. There's also been a couple of fantastic podcasts about that. I think Um, I've heard that I have family members who were involved. Shut up. I don't really know for sure, but I it has come up in conversations and members of my family. My God, of course you do. Of course you do. But yeah, so they're doing a lot of stuff. They're doing a lot of stuff that is like, ooh. Because they're just trying to get butts in seats. Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of them went really well, (laughs) but when they went bad, they went like, bad. Mm-hmm. So in 1979, Mike Veek, who's the son of the Chicago White Sox owner, Bill Veek, and he's Mike is also the promotions director for the White Sox. He was set on making sure that White Sox fans had a good time at games, whether the Sox won or lost. Mm-hmm. Early in the season, a game between the White Sox and the Detroit Tigers had been rained out and it was rescheduled for a twi-night double hitter 
on July 12th. July 12th had also already previously been scheduled as a teen night where teens could buy their tickets for half price. Can I, can I interject something totally random? Yeah. Just, you said Twilight doubleheader. Uh, Uh That was a Stephen King's first boogeyman as a kid. Cause he heard someone say something about the Twilight doubleheader and he thought it was a monster. So as a kid, he was like, would lay in bed at night being like afraid of the Twilight doubleheader coming to get him. That is so, that is so on brand. Yeah. That's fantastic. Okay. So Mike Veek and Jeff Schwartz, who was the sales manager at the loop, which again, Mm. remember is Steve Dahl's station. They cook up an anti-disco night promotion with the station. I will also say that somewhere before, I don't know if it was the year before or what, but they had also thrown a disco appreciation night. Mm -hmm. But so they come up with this anti-disco night. They ask Dahl if he wants to blow up a dumpster full of disco albums at Comiskey Park. And Dahl is like, fuck yes, I do. Yeah, because he certainly sounds like the type of person who's just into blowing shit up. Yes. Since the frequency for the loop is 97.9, they decide that in addition to the teens, anyone who brings a disco album to be blown up will get in for 98 cents. Okay. Okay. The records would be blown up on the field between games since it was a double header. Mm-hmm. The night before, on July 11th, 1979, attendance at Comiskey Park had been about 15,500. The park itself could hold just under 44,500 people. Mm-hmm. The White Sox, who were having a bad year, were hoping for about a crowd of like 20,000. And Veek hired security for 35,000. Okay. Official attendance on the night of July 12th, 1979 was 47,795 people. Wow. Owner Bill Veek estimates that there were actually probably between 50 to 55,000 people in the park. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to introduce you to another player in this game. His, uh, he's a 15-year-old usher by the name of Vince Lawrence. Okay. He was working disco demolition night and it was like a weird job. Like, I don't know that the area that Comiskey Park was in was necessarily like the same as for like a 15-year-old Well, I know it's I don't know what it would have been at the time. I know it's I, I believe South Chicago. Somewhere in the South Side. Yeah. So, so he's got that. Also like Lawrence is this kid who like actually really loves disco music. He loves music of all kinds. Mm -hmm. And the reason that he's actually taken this job is because he is an aspiring musician and he's saving up to buy himself a synthesizer. Uh, A perk of this job is that he gets to see, like he got to see the fucking Rolling Stones when Prince opened for them. He get, you know, he got to see like, ABBA and all of these, like all of these bands from all over, he got Mm. to see them. So he's 15 years old. He's working as an usher at this game. He's also black, Mm. right? He's a black kid. So again, probably talking about where Comiskey Park is located, probably maybe not the safest place for him. Right. As Lawrence is working, he's taking these tickets. He notices something. He notices that people aren't just bringing disco records. This is a quote from him. He says, there are R&B, there's funk, there's Marvin Gaye records and Mm. Steve Wonder songs in the key of life, records that were black records. And I was like, you can't get in to people who have tickets because this isn't a disco record. You have to have a disco record to get in for a dollar. Also, he also said in one of the podcasts that he was planning on like one of the reasons he also wanted to do this was so that he could take any disco records that he was like, ooh, interested in. Nice. So he's like, you know, he goes to his boss and he's like, they're bringing, they're not bringing in disco records. And the boss is like, I don't care. 
like they just wanted br- the visual. Yeah. 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 And it doesn't matter. Like if they bring a record, they get in for 98 cents. Mm-hmm. Lawrence also said, quote, I want to say that maybe a person bringing the record just made a mistake, but given the amount of mistakes I witnessed, Mm -hmm. why weren't there any air supply or cheap trick records in the bins? No carpenter records. They weren't rock and roll, right? It was Mm -hmm. just disco records and black records in the dumpster. So attendees were supposed to throw their records in this four by six by five foot box. Mm -hmm. Once the box was full, though, they just got sent back to their seats with their albums. Okay. So the I can already see where things yeah. are not going to go well. The first game was supposed to start at 6 p.m. And there was this local model who was like, she did a lot of promotional stuff for The Loop. She was also kind of known for like her like provocative poses. Mm. Um, so she throws out the first pitch. During the first game, and it's unclear if we're talking about Bill or Mike, but Veek gets word that folks were trying to get into the park without a ticket and he sends all of the security to the stadium gates. Okay. Which leaves the field completely unattended. Nobody's watching the field. (laughs) Fans begin to throw their uncollected albums from the stands, like, Mm -hmm. you know, Frisbee style, throwing them through the air. (laughs) Tiger's designated hitter, Rusty Rusty Stab, Rusty Stab, said that the records were slicing through the air and they were landing, sticking out of the ground. Like they, yeah, they were flying. I mean, it's just like flying guillotines, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So he's like, yo, teammates, I strongly encourage that you wear your helmets when you're playing your positions. (laughs) He said, quote, it wasn't just one. It was many. Oh, God almighty. I've never seen anything so dangerous in my life. (laughs) Not leaving well enough alone, the attendees also start throwing firecrackers, empty liquor bottles, (laughs) lighters out onto the field. The game had to be stopped several times because of the rain of debris. The entire stadium smelled of weed. It's that kind of a night, right? Mm -hmm. So that game comes down at 816. Detroit one and doll in army fatigues and a helmet like in a he's in like a fucking like rotc jacket you know what i mean mm-hmm. he comes out onto the field in a jeep and at this point doll and his broadcast partner a guy named gary meyer get the crowd chanting disco sucks mm-hmm. meanwhile white Sox pitcher ken kravick is on the mound warming up for the second game doll tells the crowd this is a quote this is now officially the world's largest anti-disco rally now listen we took all the disco records you brought tonight we got them in a giant box and we're gonna blow them up real good Mm -hmm. and he sets off the explosives so this (laughs) destroys the records it also blows a fucking hole in the middle of the outfield sure yeah the fact that nobody at comiskey park thought about that you know i can imagine the dumbass who wants to blow up the disco records didn't think it through but no you would have thought somebody would have been like wait a minute yeah Yeah. and again so the the records get blown up and everybody's like oh my god and they lose their mind because you know how boys are when shit gets Mm. blown up Um, (laughs) (laughs) i resemble that (laughs) (laughs) so records get blown up the guards are still out at the gates. Right. So there's no one to stop about five to 7,000 dudes from running onto <laughs> the field. Okay. There's no one to contain them. Kravik, who's the pitcher who'd been out there warming up, was like, fuck this. And yeah. nopes his way out of there. 
and joins his team in their barricaded clubhouse. Attendees mm. start climbing the foul poles. They rip up the grass. They destroy the batting cage. They tear up and literally steal the bases. Mm-hmm. Like they're just going nuts. Yeah. Um, Owner Bill Veek is on a microphone by home plate begging people (laughs) to go back to their seats as a fire, which isn't the explosion. Mm -hmm. Another fire rages in center field. Mm -hmm. The scoreboard is flashing. Please return to your seats. They fucking start playing. Take me out to the ball game. Like we need to find like. I know because I've seen videos of this stuff. We need to find for social media some of the video because it is pretty incredible. Like, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's almost like apocalyptic feeling in a really yeah. stupid way. Like, yeah, in a very stupid way. So, yeah, they start doing all this stuff, like hoping that this would have. <laughs> I think my favorite thing is that they play Take Me Out to the Ball Game, hoping <laughs> that that will have some kind of like Pavlovian effect on mm-hmm. the fans and that they'll like <laughs> calmly return to your their seats it 100% doesn't at 908 the chicago police arrive mm-hmm. mind you there were still actual baseball fans in the stands who had shown up to see a doubleheader right and they're, they're like they're not here for all this nonsense like, no they're like i just want to see the fucking baseball game bro <laughs> so those baseball fans are like yay and they cheer when the cops show up mm-hmm. as soon as the cops show up all of the folks in the field it's like anti-disco hooligans <laughs> were like oh. And they get the fuck out of there. Yeah. It ends with 39 people being arrested for disorderly conduct. It also, like, there are varying reports in terms of injuries. Reports vary from no one was injured to, like, 20 or 30 people were injured. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever it was that happened, it doesn't seem like anything that happened was, like, super, super serious. Yeah. Veek still wants the second game to happen, but the umpire crew chief is like, there's a fucking hole in the outfield. Right. <laughs> like, no, there's yeah. like shit we everywhere. Just put out the fire. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. The game ends up being forfeited to the Tigers. It mm-hmm. was and remains the last American League game to be forfeited. Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. I guess there was only like five games that got forfeited. I saw some I, I, weird statistic yeah, about that. I, I remember, I, I feel like it was Ken Burns' baseball documentary because I do believe he talks about the whole disco demolition thing. And I think they talk about that. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the aftermath. So that's mm-hmm. that, that's essentially disco demolition night. Yeah. Right. In the aftermath, the morning after, Dahl gets on the radio and he starts reading the headlines and he's like very like he's like mocking the coverage of mm-hmm. the event. He says, quote, I think for the most part, everything was wonderful. Some maniac co-hos got wild, went down on the field, which you shouldn't have done. Bad little co-hos. Mm. Okay. Tigers manager Anderson said of the events, beer and baseball go together. They have for years, but I think those kids were doing things other than beer. (laughs) Yep. And a White Sox pitcher, Rich Wortham, uh, who is a Texan, said this wouldn't have happened if they'd had a country and Western night. (laughs) That's probably true. It's probably true. (laughs) So... The popularity of disco had started to decline Mm -hmm. in late 1979, early 80. And I want to be very clear here because there's a lot of people who credit Disco Demolition Night as like the the night that disco died or like the death of disco. It wasn't. 
What you had there was that people saw that they had something very successful in disco music, but you had a lot of like white straight record label execs who were mm-hmm. making the music and taking the money, but kind of like holding their nose while they did it. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't like it. They thought it was like icky. They didn't understand it, but it was a cash cow. So they were making it. So what we actually saw when we, when we say that we saw the decline of disco was we actually saw a decline in the use of the word disco. Mm-hmm. Disco became dance music. Right. And that's kind of it. That's Yeah, exactly. I mean, you listen to a lot of like, even like, you know, more modern dance music, you can hear the like disco influence in it. Oh yeah. For you 100%. Know. So I think it's real easy to look at Disco Demolition Night as this like silly stunt. But of course, like you and I know, when you dig into stuff a little bit deeper, some pretty nasty stuff is unearthed. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so remember Vince Lawrence, our usher? Mm-hmm. Yep. He said that after the police arrived, someone walked up to him and said, hey, you, Disco sucks, and snapped a 12-inch you know, LP in half in front of his face. Okay. And he said... Quote, that's when I started feeling like, okay, they're just targeting me because I'm black. I've got a loop T-shirt on. What's the difference between me and the next usher trying to get back to his locker? I was one of the few African-American people in the stadium. Steve Dahl said it wasn't discriminatory. He was an equal opportunity offender or whatever. But Steve didn't invite no brothers to Comiskey Park, Mm -hmm. end quote. Mm -hmm. So like I said, Disco Demolition Night was seen as harmless by a lot of people, even when people did cover of it at that time they were like haha it's so silly disco demolition night mm-hmm. but a guy by the name of Dave Marsh who was a critic at Rolling Stone actually said at the time that disco demolition night was quote your most paranoid fantasy about where the ethnic cleansing of the rock radio could ultimately lead Mm-hmm. In like a year-end 1979 wrap-up feature that he wrote, he said, quote, white males 18 to 34 are the most likely to see disco as the product of homosexuals, blacks, and Latins, and mm-hmm. therefore they're the most likely to respond to appeals to wipe out such threats to their security. Right. So here's where we start getting into a lot of the stuff being coded, urging your fans to go throw marshmallows at music that is like at a van for a station that plays music that is deeply rooted in the queer community. Mm -hmm. Like that's not a that's not an accident. No, of course not. It's a very clear message of of what they think of people who listen to disco. Mm-hmm. Niles Rogers, who w- who's a producer and he was a guitarist of the band Chic, the band that put out La Freak, mm-hmm. he honestly saw the event like a Nazi book burning. Mm-hmm. Alice Eccles, she's the author of a book called Hot Stuff, Disco and the Remaking of American Culture, offered that even though disco was making record, this is she was the one who was like, disco is making record labels a ton of music, but these white straight exists are taking that money while holding their noses. She said, quote, they were worried about it crashing, but they wanted it to crash so that they could get back to classical rock. Mm-hmm. And also, let me also say here, just to even out the playing field, <laughs> disco was also hated by a lot of people on the progressive far left because they felt it lacked a political message. Oh, uh, well, yeah. And my thing is like, did it though? Well, the, there's a certain personality that it's like, if it's not strident and angry, 
and you know kind of i don't want to use the word virtue signaling but you know what i mean when i say that well and i also like like it's got to be obvious and like and if it's not that if it's fun like anything that's seen as like fun can't have substance can't right you have to be miserable (laughs) it has to be miserable i mean as much as i love pearl jam it was the thing that made pearl jam a little insufferable in the 90s like i mean i got i became a pearl jam fan a little bit later because i kind of couldn't deal with it like at the time Mm -hmm. (laughs) But there is a certain, we all know these people where it's just like, okay, come the fuck on. Like, yeah, like you're allowed to have some fun. Right. But like, yeah, find some joy in your life. You know, again, touch some grass. Like, touch some grass. I also get out of your head a little. I also have to wonder if it actually did lack a political message or if it just lacked a political message that these people cared about. I think it 100%. This is the thing about why I don't want to like take over your story, but like this is the thing about disco is 100% political. Yes. Like it's not protest music, but it's rallying music, like you said, for these communities. You know, it's celebratory. Doesn't make it not political. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, if you know anything about, If you know anything about queer culture, you know, in this country prior to the AIDS epidemic, Mm -hmm. you know that it was a dangerous time to be a young queer kid in this country. Right. Not just because you were facing like there was there was like no help for you. Like Mm -hmm. if your family found out that you were queer, they were going to kick you out onto the streets and it didn't matter if you were 12 or 13 and had Mm -hmm. nothing, like no way to take care of yourself. You were going to be ostracized by your community. There were laws against you. New York, somewhere in the research for this, and I don't know where in the decade it was, but New York had repealed a law that had outlawed two men dancing together in Mm. the 1970s. In the 1970s, they were like, I guess it's fine if two men want to dance together mm-hmm. but but right. maybe we maybe we'll throw it back on there but maybe we won't you know what right. i mean right. like you could get thrown in jail for this stuff you could get fired for this and there was no protection for you mm-hmm. so i think when you talk about songs like sister sledges we are family yeah like that's, i'm sorry that's political <laughs> it's political it's clearly talking about finding a community and finding right. a, a family right so the woman that i just mentioned alice nichols she also says that for some disco was inseparable from things like school integration and affirmative action mm-hmm. uh, the fear of disco was partly quote the fear that american identity was no longer synonymous with whiteness well this is this is at the same time as like all the busing controversies exactly you know? exactly yeah. Exactly. For people like Doll, disco represented this sort of emasculation. Mm-hmm. You couldn't wear like your scruffy t-shirt and jeans. Yeah. You had to get dressed up. And worst of all, your girlfriend or wife expected you to humiliate yourself by fucking dancing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, his his stuff really, I've seen, I think I've seen interviews with him and like his stuff really seems pretty rooted in homophobia. Yeah, it's really rooted in homophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, he spent a lot of time on the air complaining about like the sort of quote unquote metrosexuality of disco, mm-hmm. the grooming, the clothing. And he also had this idea and like pr- like pushed this idea that gay men were coming for your women. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, like what? It doesn't make no, any sense. No, it, yeah. It's, um, him and his his like cronies were convinced that Travolta's character Tony in Saturday Night Fever was actually gay and that the glitter and gloss of disco means that men are. So, okay. You've got in disco 
people who are suddenly becoming very stylish, like the sort of like hippie culture, scruffy Mm t-shirt jeans, which there's nothing fucking wrong with that. We're just talking about a different fucking sense of style, right? Right. But that like that's starting to take over. And somebody hypothesized that Dahl was like looking at this and basically being like, so I have to do this. I have to like comb my hair and wipe (laughs) my ass and take a shower and put on clothes in order to get laid. And then gross. gross. Yeah. This, uh, it was a quote from this article and I'm sorry, I, I don't remember the authors. It's not an article. It's like a thesis paper, but this, uh, the author says that this was this quote, collective stage fright, a male demand for a return to the position of gazer rather than gazed upon. Mm-hmm. They were upset that they were having to do what they expected women to do, which was mm-hmm. like, you know, preen and get ready and take care of themselves and do all this stuff. They didn't want to do that. It's essentially they wanted to yeah. they wanted to sit back and do nothing like they had been able to do. What what to me is like so fascinating about this though is that these are also a lot like I think a lot of the people who are like fuck disco disco sucks disco demolition whatever yeah we're like just a few years later we're like listening to Motley Crue and Poison where it's like like these are dudes who are like straight up just wearing makeup you know yes. like the whole glam rock thing and pretty pretty I mean pretty look at, men look at Brett Michaels from that time period like come on but it's like that weird disconnect is it's just fascinating and this is the thing where i'm like this is the thing where i start to be like i get it that you probably don't want to admit to yourself but the big difference here is that this is stuff that is coming from queer communities of color Mm -hmm. that's the difference right the aesthetic is not that dissimilar the like glam rock you can't say you can't say that and glam rock was like super political (laughs) right (laughs) no but like and i mean i'm actually gonna get into it in my story a little bit but like you know the whole glam rock thing like there is there's always been a tension in the metal world between like the scruffy t-shirt and jeans bands and the glam rock bands and so like there definitely are like the rockers who are like fuck poison for the same reason they hate disco you know right but there is a thing like just that weird disconnect between the the blatant androgyny of a band like poison with this like performative hyper masculinity that is just yeah. like it's it's so interesting to me it's yeah. so interesting that people weren't like making those connections well and it's interesting too because what was going on with disco was this sort of again this like fear of this role reversal mm-hmm. right that like if i as a man comb my hair and pick out a nice suit and like go to the clubs and do all of this stuff that I am in some way being emasculated. Mm -hmm. And additionally, they were also seeing that the men who were doing this were fucking hot. Mm -hmm. You know, they had like good bodies. They could move. They took care of themselves. And so they were like, and the ladies liked those. And the ladies liked that. Even if they weren't like sleeping with them, the ladies were like, this is fucking cool. Like you don't like, you know, again, you wipe your ass. Like that's awesome. (laughs) And so I think they started to, I think it created this weird sort of like lizard brain evolutionary 
panic in them. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing to understand about this time, and this goes back to a little bit about what you were saying about like busing and stuff, is that we were in like the 1970s was again in the aftermath of the civil rights movement. The civil rights, Mm -hmm. everything that happened during the 1960s was starting to fracture because what you had was these groups of marginalized people who were starting to focus more on their differences than their commonalities. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, it was starting to to fracture. Mm-hmm. What you also had was that white people in this country weren't, quote unquote, openly racist. They could mm-hmm. talk about things like busing and integration and stuff and be like, oh, this is about like local choice and small government and like how, right. how we use our resources. And yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. Right. So people weren't saying like openly racist things but you had that those conversations going on mm-hmm. homophobia however was Whoa. blatant oh it was open yeah yeah it was open blatant homophobia this is still the period where people think that homosexuals were perverts um it's a this mental was the, illness it was like... a mental illness this was the decade that harvey milk was assassinated mm-hmm. um anita bryant was out there trying to prohibit gay people from being teachers because mm-hmm. she and this is not something that she like sort of quietly thought this was her fucking platform was that gay people cannot biologically reproduce therefore they have to recruit mm-hmm. children in order to like strengthen Strengthen their ranks. I mean, I'm so glad that that era is completely gone and we have none of that happening today. We have none of that happening in Florida. Now. Yeah. Florida, I mean, we are looking directly at you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but also a lot of other places. And right. I will say there is something that is almost strangely comforting about look like seeing this stuff and being like, this is just what happens. Like people are going to lose their fucking minds. Mm-hmm. And not that is in no way saying that like, we don't need to worry about it. Not to minimize it. No. Yeah. Not to minimize it, but there's something that it's like, it's not, it's new. not that it's particularly bad right now. It's mm-hmm. that humans are going to human and mm-hmm. we're always going to have to deal with this stuff. And we're always going to have to be vigilant against it. Yeah. It'll, I mean, as we've talked about with anti-Semitism, it's, it'll yes. seem like it goes away and then like, Oh no, they still hate the Jews. Like yes. it'll always pop back up. Yeah. And I think we're seeing that like just a few years ago, it really seemed like, Oh man, we've made so many strides in terms of gay rights and gay acceptance. And, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, we have, but then we see things going on now and it's like, yeah, we're not there yet. At best it's two steps forward one step back yeah and i think it's important to remember that all of this stuff is also it's it's clearly a reaction to these like civil liberties that are you know either being returned or not being infringed upon for certain for certain groups that this is truly a thing of like haters are they're always going to literally hate right so yeah you have that going on so again you have this environment in which people are being racist but they're being like very coded about it they're being Mm -hmm. very it's a lot of dog whistle stuff Mm -hmm. but then you've also got this thing where blatant outright homophobia is Mm -hmm. socially acceptable Mm -hmm. and disco yes put people of color in the spotlight but it also really put queer culture in the spotlight yeah it's like that's disco is where it all kind of comes together 
Yeah, because at this point, you then have people like bands like the Village People. Mm-hmm. You have performers like Sylvester appearing on TV. I cannot imagine what it would be like to be a like racist homophobe in Florida or whatever, and to see someone like Sylvester on mm-hmm. your TV screen. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> you had to have thought the world was ending. Oh yeah, I mean, particularly at that time where you just hadn't seen that before. Yeah. Like- For anybody who doesn't know, Sylvester, a musician most widely known for his hit disco song, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real, Mm -hmm. Um, he had a flamboyant, and I mean that in the best possible way, a flamboyant and androgynous Mm -hmm. appearance. He would frequently show up in clothing like he he would – yeah, I mean, he would kind of he would cross dress. He would wear like caftans and stuff. Mm-hmm. He sung in a falsetto. Mm-hmm. Again, that's what I remember about mm-hmm. that song is the falsetto. Yeah. yeah, this was openly queer culture, and I'm sure that these dudes, these like white straight dudes, were fucking terrified. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, they're listening to Judas Priest and Rob Halford, and little did they know, little did they know, <laughs> big old gays. <laughs> um, Not only. That, but like literally just like putting leather culture into the mainstream. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? Is that like this is so interesting to look at when we know what's coming up mm-hmm. in the next decade that it's all of this stuff that it's like, oh man, you just like. It's just such a spasm of like yeah. this reaction, which is what I feel like we're going through right now. And like, yes. hopefully that means five years from now, thing, you know, we'll, we'll have. Yeah. 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 Go vote. Uh, There's no elections (laughs) happening right now, but register to vote. Dahl in his 2016 book, Disco Demolition, The Night Disco Died. (laughs) I hope people could hear my eye roll in that. (laughs) It wasn't subtle. (laughs) He said, quote, I'm worn out from defending myself as a racist homophobe. The event was not anti-racist, not anti-gay. We were just kids pissing on a musical genre. He defends the Chicago rock and roll lifestyle from an unwanted invasion that, quote, demeaned the ordinary life that kids inhabited. Mm-hmm. I also have to say that, that that's a quote from his book. Those are his words that an editor looked at and said, seal of approval, cool. hit the presses. Right. And that is one hell of a Freudian slip. Mm-hmm. He is tired of defending himself as a racist homophobe, not from a racist mm-hmm. homophobe. Mm-hmm. And the event wasn't anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Like, I get what he was trying to say, yeah, but fucking but, hell. Right. Someone should have cleaned that up. <laughs> Somebody should have been like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's tweak this language. Right. Um, okay. So remember I told you that he released Do You Think I'm Disco parody song. Mm-hmm. The lyrics were all about how discotheques were filled with effeminate men and frigid women. Mm-hmm. The protagonist in the song, his name is Tony, uh, <laughs> clearly taken from Saturday Night right, Fever, right. can't attract women until he sells his his white three-piece suit and melts down his gold chains for a, a Led Zeppelin belt buckle. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have thoughts, but. Yes. Also, if you listen to the song, he is absolutely doing like a gay voice in the song. Mm, um, yeah. 
And he would frequently pronounce the word disco with a lisp. I, I Again. feel like I've heard that song before and I tend to remember that. Yeah. And it's like, it's the like, do, 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 do of, do you think I'm sexy? Mm-hmm. But then he's just like talking through it. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah. There's a great cover of that song, by the way, by a band called The Revolting Cox. Of uh, Do You Think I'm Disco or Do You Think I'm Sexy? Do You Think I'm Sexy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> interesting. No. Okay. This is from the Vice article. And that is uh, that article was titled Disco Demolition Night Was a Disgrace and Celebrating It Is Worse. Uh, that was written by Josh Terry. And he says, Dahl wrote, quote, I wouldn't have known how to go to a club and wear a suit. There was a lot of intimidation and disenfranchisement, especially if you were a male. Come on. This was the 1970s, which was an extremely, extremely solid and comfortable time to be a white male who lived in the Chicago suburbs. (laughs) Right. Terry wrote that article because the White Sox chose to commemorate the 40th anniversary of Disco Demolition Night in July of 2019. Oh, I I kind of remember. I remember people being a little annoyed about that. I mean, it was during Pride. Mm-hmm. You know what I like, mean? Like, it was probably I mean, not the not the best. Could have thought that through a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Terry goes on to say, quote, the team would be better suited celebrating its diverse fan base rather than commemorating angry white teens tearing something down that paved the way for hip hop, house music, and so many other important movements. Mm-hmm. Somebody that I had seen, and again, this comes back to the thing of there being like a sort of strange seeing all of this that was just seeing the same stuff over and over again, like, you know, finding that comfort. That's what I'm trying to say in this stuff. Mm-hmm. Somebody had said in one of the podcasts that, they looked at Disco Demolition Night, like the footage that they saw of these like all white city councils getting their knickers in a twist because of rock and roll music and not because mm-hmm. it was rock and roll music, but because it was bringing black, black and white culture, kids right. together. Right. And again, it's certainly reminiscent to what we are seeing today with things like critical race theory mm. and drag queens and, you know, anti-trans laws and bills and all this stuff. Again, not to say I'm not trying to minimize it in any way, but it is, well, I think, just- sometimes. I think sometimes it's really easy to be like, what is happening? What is happening? Why is stuff so bad? And it's like, it's bad again. It's it's, like, this is the way that it goes. Like you said, two steps forward, there's got to be the one step back. Right. Yeah. We just were as a species, not capable of like cleanly progressing in one direction. No. 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 Um, Yeah. So that is the somewhat, like I said, somewhat surprising story of Disco Demolition Night. I went into this really thinking that it was just going to be like, oh, you know, sports fans being sports fans and uncovered a whole mess of stuff that I was like, well, huh. What's interesting about some of this is like, so we're talking 1979. Mm -hmm. So I would have been two years old. Mm hmm. I was like um, four months old. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I, you know, I'm obviously I'm a metal dude. I'm definitely much more of the like scruffy t-shirt and jeans kind yeah. of aesthetic, you know. But what's interesting is when I got, you know, getting into college and stuff, being around other metal dudes, the, the disco sucks thing was still a thing in oh, that yeah. world. Like in yeah. the nine, like in the 90s. Yeah. And like, I don't think I really necessarily thought about it in terms of what it was really saying, I wasn't thinking about the homophobia and the racism, at least until later. Mm -hmm. I just remember being kind of confused as to like, why are we mad about this musical genre that's like super old at this point? It's like, I've never, like, 
I like some disco. Uh, there's some, I, you know, it's like any musical genre. There's good, there's yeah. bad. I never have been mad at disco, and I never understood why, like, 90s metal dudes in Pantera shirts are mad yeah. at disco. Yeah. But it's because these things just, these were also the same dudes that were, like, real bothered when, um, Rob Halford came out. Oh, know. I'm sure. Well, and this is the this is the thing, right? Like if there is something that you don't like and you can't just get on with the rest of your life. If it becomes a point where like you are doggedly bringing it up and you are obsessing about it and you're trying to figure out ways to destroy this thing, you don't just dislike that thing. You mm-hmm. are scared of something that that thing represents in you mm-hmm. that you were trying to keep hidden. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and that could either be your own sexuality. That could be your own fear of people who are not like you. Mm-hmm. But there is, look, I have a gold medal in disliking things. <laughs> I have never yeah. been like, take it to the streets. And I'm not trying to be like, oh, oh I'm better than everybody. But because clearly, I am, but, um, (laughs) but it's just the thing of like, you have got to stop and, and ask yourself why you are so obsessed with something. Well, again, it goes back to your rant from the last episode about the star Wars, about the toxic again. Yes. I I did have a little bit of pushback from a couple of people feeling like we painted all Star Wars fans with the same brush. So let's just stipulate toxic (laughs) Star Wars fans, not not everybody. But like, they're not mad at the new movies because, I don't know, they don't like the new, like, the things that were coming up that they were mad about was the Black Stormtrooper. Was, um, I'm forgetting the actress's name in the second movie. um, Yes. The Asian American actor. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, the new Ghostbusters movie. I did not like the new, and I'm talking about the one with Kristen Wiig and stuff. Yes. I didn't particularly like that movie because I didn't think it was very well written. That was my beef about it. Um, But that was not the complaint that the fans were, and that wasn't why they were review bombing that movie. It was because it was women. It was because it's not women. Like, who are you fucking kidding? Yeah. And, and also like, Like something controversial you, <laughs> is about to be said. Well, because I'm a little like, don't fucking not all Star Wars fans me. Like, if I'm not talking about you, I'm not talking about you. <laughs> if something doesn't resonate with you, then I'm mm-hmm. not talking to you. Right. Like, there's plenty of stuff that gets said that I'm like, that's not for me because I don't I like. Yeah. I don't like. It doesn't. It doesn't click with me. It doesn't resonate with me. Mm-hmm. So I'm not one of the people that we're talking about. Right. And like I just said earlier, there is like, there's a bottom loud third mm. of people if this is a little bit of a thing of like if you don't want to be known as if you like you don't want to not all star wars fans me then like you also need to do your work in the fandom to be like hey man and maybe they do maybe the 100 maybe these people do right mm. maybe they are out on twitter and stuff being like dude fuck you like i mean that and that is that know. does happen like 100 and this and this is a thing like even in i don't know about at the time of the disco demolition but when we're talking about like like even when Rob Halford came out of the closet in mm-hmm. the 90s, there was, like you said, this loud third, some of whom were people I knew of mm-hmm. metal dudes who were real bothered by it. Mm-hmm. And then there was quite a few, like a good number of people being like, shut the fuck up. He's he's a metal god. He can do it. No literally, it literally like, makes no difference yeah. like the, in, so in anything that in any part of him that you connect with. Right. So it's like, I have to imagine that there were, I mean, there were probably plenty of rock fans 
fans at the time of the disco demolition who were just kind of like, this is dumb. Like, why, why are we mad about this thing? And but those are the people who are usually not making a lot of noise. You know? Right. And that's the thing, right? Is that that's the problem is that the people that are like, I don't really care if like disco is a thing. And like, mm. I'm certainly not going to go buy an album and spend money on it to go burn it at a baseball game. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Um, <laughs> I would have one hundred percent been one of the people, honestly, in that crowd who was just like, "Can we just watch the fucking game? Can we just I watch like, the I baseball game?" I would have come for the Twilight doubleheader. Yeah, there was. Uh, I think on the "You're Wrong About" podcast, they were like, "You know that there was a bunch of dudes there who just like went and raided their sister's record collection for sure, and like yeah. stole their records to take to the thing." But again, I think again, that's the thing. Like, you can dislike something. One, I'm not saying that you have to love everything. Oh, I'm yeah. not. I'm not trying to be like be super. You can dislike stuff. What I am saying is that if your dislike of something pushes you to do something that you would not normally do in your everyday life, there's something else going on. Yeah, and that's the thing where I'm like, you need to take a look at yourself, and you need to be mm-hmm. like. Why am I so bothered by this? And mm-hmm. that's why I think it's funny that Steve Dahl is like, I'm tired of defending myself as a racist homophobe. And I'm like, well, but are you examining that part of yourself? Oh, no, of course not. No, he's not. Yeah. I mean. And so, like, the reason that you continue to have to defend yourself, again, weirdly worded, as a racist homophobe <laughs> is because there's something in there. Be, like, you can sit here and you can be like, no, man, it was just like boys will be boys and we were having fun. Was well, it? well, and there is a thing. That as it's like the most insufferable thing to me about the metal scene, metal and punk scenes. Yeah. Again, I'm a metal dude. I'm a punk dude. Like those are those are my genres. But just the gatekeeping about like who's a sellout, who you know that kind of shit is just fucking tiresome this whole like thing about this comes up in in the metal world a lot about purity you know if a band tries to and i'm gonna mention it a little bit in my story if if a band tries to go a little bit outside of their what they've established themselves for all of a sudden they're sellouts like right and that's the thing is try anything new they can't experiment like you know and you can't it's not fair to ask creative people to preserve themselves in amber Mm-hmm. The reason they created the thing that you supposedly love so much is because they took risks. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about risks is that sometimes they fucking fail. And sometimes it's like, right. well, you know, we, uh, okay, you tried we wanted something. to put out that disco album. And we yeah, sure I mean, put out that disco album. I will say, like, Kiss's disco song, not not great. You know? But you and know, at I the don't same fault time, them for giving it a shot. Yeah, know? they gave it a shot, man. Okay, I'm going to hop off of my soapbox because we have okay. a little bit of a time crunch. So I, I want to give you space to do your story as well. Okay, well, to continue with the theme of real stupid riots. Yes. So uh, my so I don't really have a cold open this week, but anyone, again, and this is anyone in the metal world is going to know what I'm talking about. My story this week is about the Battle of Montreal or the night that Guns N' Roses broke Canada. So, <laughs> poor Canada. Uh, poor Canada. So, my sources this week are Wikipedia, Ranker, UltimateClassicRock.com website, Glide Magazine, The Metal Voice, Montreal Gazette, Vice, and the documentary A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica. Beautiful. So to start with this, I do need to go into the history of uh, a couple bands. 
Okay. Some pretty, they're pretty obscure. You know, you might, might not have heard of them. Uh, one of them, of course, is Metallica. <laughs> the other <laughs> is Guns N' Roses. <laughs> so Metallica, just a little bit just of history. Just little, little indie bands. Just little indie bands, <laughs> you know, you know, kind of, kind of forgotten today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> really had very little impact on very pop little culture or yeah um okay so metallica james hatfield he was born on august 9th 1963 in downey california which is kind of a like inland empire suburb mm-hmm. of la mm-hmm. um his mom was cynthia bassett she was a light opera singer and then his dad was virgil lee hatfield he was a truck driver they were very strict christian scientists so they refused like any sort of medical care even after cynthia was diagnosed with cancer and she would oh, end up dying shit. in 1980 when james was 16 years old okay a lot of metallicas oh go ahead sorry this is just for my own edification christian scientists don't have anything to do with scientology right no totally okay. totally different totally, totally different, different. Okay. no okay. chris and i and i am not an expert on christian science as a religion um i know it was originally formed in boston and hmm. uh, you know the thing that everyone knows about christian scientists is that they refuse medical care and it's more like you know we will pray to God. And, you know, if it's God's will that I die, it's my time to die, that kind of thing. So Cynthia Hatfield, so she was diagnosed with cancer. She died in 1980 when James was 16. Mm -hmm. A lot of Metallica songs are kind of dealing with that, particularly his disillusionment with religion. So you have a song like Dyer's Eve from the Injustice for All album and The God That Failed from the Black album. And put a pin in the Black album because that's we're going to be talking about that a little more in a little bit. So James began studying the piano when he was nine. He switched to the guitar when he was 14. His first big rock influence was Aerosmith. Um, Mm -hmm. And he actually said, uh, Joe Perry, I believe, is the guitarist from Aerosmith. And he was like, that's the guy that made me want to like learn to play guitar so interesting but his parents got divorced in 1976 when he was 13 like i said his mom died just a few years later when he was 16 he had a pretty rocky relationship from what i understand with his father although i don't think it was like it wasn't like abusive or anything i think it was just like his dad was very strict yeah james was like a metal kid you know and yeah. the long hair you know whatever so he ended up going to live with his older brother for a while and he ended up graduating from bria olinda high school in brea california uh that was in 1981 that same year, goofy little Danish guy named Lars Ulrich. <laughs> and any any metal fans know why I call him a goofy little Danish guy, if you've ever seen him interviewed. But he he was a drummer. He put an ad in the Recycler, which was an independent LA newspaper. He was a big metal fan. He was particularly into what was called the new wave of British heavy metal, which kind of grew out of bands like Judas Priest, who I've talked about. And that yeah. was incorporated. Probably the biggest new wave of British heavy metal band would be Iron Maiden. But then you also have bands like Diamond Head, Saxon, things like that. These were bands were fairly obscure in the U.S. at the time. So you had James Hatfield, who's into like a lot of classic rock and Black Sabbath and stuff. He answers this ad that Lars Ulrich put in the paper looking for people to play with. And so Lars was the one who introduced James to all this music, which ended up being a big influence on the sound of Metallica. It's fascinating um, to me, the number of bands where it was like one dude who was like, I want to start a band. I'm going to put an ad in the paper. Yeah. And then they that made. Time, yeah. They were like, huge. And then, yeah. Made, like. That like fate threw these people together to mm-hmm. create, you know, 
Metallica. Right. Like, exactly. <laughs> it's nuts to me that these weren't people that were like, no, man, we grew up together. We'd been playing since we were like seven years old. Well, and that comes up a little bit with Guns N' Roses, the the mm-hmm. whole like childhood friends thing. But that, uh-huh. but yeah, you're right. And there was a, uh, I mean, I think like bands, like I believe the Pixies came off of a uh, mm-hmm. uh, ad in the paper. Like this Motley was, Crew. Motley Crew was an ad in the paper. This was just how it started at the time. And particularly, yeah. I think if you were an LA band, like all these LA indie papers were like this yeah. was so which is funny because people don't really think of metallica as an la band and i'll get to why in a minute but like but they did they started in la so metallica and lars hatfield they meet they start playing together or uh yeah james hatfield lars Ulrich, they meet mm-hmm. they start playing together what's interesting they've always had this kind of weirdly contentious relationship and when you see the two of them you're like yeah you guys wouldn't like naturally be friends yeah like <laughs> you can tell they're super different yeah um now lars has always been kind of like the hustler in the band like he was the guy who was really pushing early on Mm -hmm. so he ended up before they even had a band i think this might have been why he put the ad in the paper he had talked to a guy named brian slagle from uh indie record label called metal blade records metal blade ended up becoming super important with like the development of thrash is a genre but he talked to this brian slagle and he was like hey man i want to cut a demo for you they had this what is now infamous compilation record coming out called metal massacre and lars was like i want to cut a demo for for this compilation and but he didn't have a band <laughs> so he managed okay. to convince james hetfield to come and sing and play rhythm guitar for this demo so that's when they formed the band metallica okay that was on october 28th of 1981 they kept looking for other musicians they put out more ads in the paper that's where they found a guy named dave mustaine who they brought on to be the lead guitarist they hired him specifically because he showed up with expensive equipment um so this is what dave mustaine said in uh in an interview later he said i was in the room warming up and i walked out and asked well am i gonna audition or what they said no you've got the job (laughs) it's like i couldn't believe how easy it had been and suggested that we get some beer to celebrate (laughs) <laughs> so in 1982 they recorded the song hit the lights that's their first original song it did appear on the metal massacre compilation the band name was misspelled on the compilation it had two t's for some reason um which apparently they were real mad about <laughs> of course <laughs> and immediately the song starts generating like this word of mouth because this is before thrash this was like at the time of like like the big metal bands were still things like judas priest aerosmith stuff like that and then you have this thrash metal style come out that's much more aggressive it's much more rooted in like hardcore punk than metal had been in the past so this the song hit the lights like people immediately were talking about it they hired a bassist a guy named ron mcgovney they played their first show march 14th 1982 in anaheim and were just an immediately like a hit in the local scene and that led to their second show actually opening for the band saxon which like i said was a new wave of british heavy metal band they pretty much immediately fired ron mcgovney like within a few months i think because ulrich and hitfield went to see a band called trauma at the whiskey a go-go which is mm. a famous club in west hollywood Mm -hmm. and they saw the band trauma's bassist a guy named cliff burton and they were like we need that guy so they reached out to cliff he initially turned them down but eventually joined the band i think in 1983 they're like sorry ron bye they have they have since played a couple shows with ron mcgovney like in later years (laughs) so like here's our first bassist ron mcgovney and he's just he's just like a dad now or something but like so they got cliff burton well cliff was a classically trained musician Mm -hmm. so he just brought this level of 
of like he just pushed the band forward like this level of sophistication to the music yeah in may of 1983 kind of not long after they hired cliff they went out to rochester new york to record their first album it was initially going to be called metal up your ass and i think it was going to have like a sword coming out of a toilet <laughs> on the cover they ended up not going with that the album ultimately was called kill em all um okay that was the first metallica album once they got to rochester though they immediately fired dave mustang i think they like they spent one night on like the floor of a rehearsal space and then when they woke up the next morning they just they like shoved a bus ticket in dave mustaine's pocket and like they were like go back basically. go get Bye. your stuff and go <laughs> basically yeah and it's because he was like dave mustaine was an asshole he was mm. a mean mean drunk so here's a quote i don't remember who says this quote. i think this was that brian slagle uh the guy from metal blade he says dave was an incredibly talented guy but he also had an incredibly large problem with alcohol and drugs he'd get wasted and become a real crazy person a raging megalomaniac and the other guys just couldn't deal with that after a while i mean they all drank of course but dave drank more much more i could see they were beginning to get fed up of seeing dave drunk and out of his mind all the time so the final straw came when dave mustaine and james hatfield got into a fist fight because dave mustaine's dog scratched up james hatfield's car so of course dave mustaine he would go on to form the band megadeth megadeth is another one of the big four thrash bands mm -hmm. uh, along with anthrax and slayer and megadeth and metallica have had a feud that has been going on essentially like i just read on facebook that dave mustaine is still talking shit about metallica <laughs> Did he ever, did he get clean? He did. And he's actually, he's like a born again Christian now and stuff. And he's, he, he like goes on Alex Jones and shit. Like Dave, Dave Mustaine can uh, kind of go fuck himself. Like I've never been a Megadeth fan and he's just uh -huh. always been kind of a prick. <laughs> okay. Okay. But he's, but he's a great guitarist, whatever. I don't know. Who cares? Yeah. Um, so Metallica then hired a dude named Kirk Hammett from a San Francisco band named Exodus. Um, and at this point, Metallica, I think, had actually relocated up to San Francisco. So they were becoming like more known as like a Bay Area band. Mm -hmm. And so Kirk Hammett came out from San Francisco, left his original band Exodus, joined Metallica, and is in Metallica to this day. Okay. Is the lead guitarist. Okay. So they released two albums on Megaforce Records. Uh, one was called Kill Em All. That's the one that was initially supposed to be Metal Up Your Ass. Mm -hmm. That was in July of 1983. The following year, they released the album Ride the Lightning in August of 1984. That album hit 100 on the Billboard 200. Okay. It was sort of the first thrash album to start like people's ears were like perking up a little mm -hmm. bit they then signed to electra records in september of 1984 they went on to release master of puppets in march of 1986 this is basically considered their masterpiece i think even today and it has been recently rediscovered by all the youngs because of the show stranger things so um yep. but unfortunately like they're riding high at this point but then on september 27th of 1986 the band was touring in sweden the tour bus hit some black ice and rolled Ooh. cliff burton the bassist was thrown from the van uh or the bus i don't even think it was a van i think it was a bus he was thrown from the bus the bus landed on top of him he was obviously killed uh. this was very and this is obviously like anyone who knows the history of metallica knows how traumatic this was to the band like yeah. they very nearly broke up they ended up auditioning all sorts of people to take over the basis slot and they hired a guy named jason newstead from arizona he was in a band called flotsam and jetsam to replace burton and sounds like they never really accepted jason i mean he was in the band for yeah. well over a i think he ended up leaving in like 2004 in a fairly contentious way and what it came down to is they it sounds like they kind of almost like all their anger about what happened to cliff they're all super close friends with cliff 
have. Yeah. It just kind of took out on Jason. Jason's a great, he's a great musician. In every interview I've ever seen with him, he seems like a pretty like decent guy, but you know, just mm-hmm. um, I think it was always kind of a weird, odd fit. Yeah. Um, they recorded the album Injustice for All in 1988. Famously mixed the album in such a way where you don't hear the bass at all. Uh, so it was a big fuck you to their new bassist right out of the gate. <laughs> wow. They all they claim later, like, we didn't mean to do that. We were just bad at mixing stuff and we like guitars but it it seems pretty like yeah Mm -hmm. yeah to be fair i mean they were genuinely traumatized by what happened to cliff 100 percent. the album and justice for all reached number six on the billboard 200 so this was their real their big breakout was injustice for all fans would know the song one that's probably that's the most famous song from that album it was their first album to reach the top 10 and they ended up winning the grammy for best hard rock metal performance in 1989 that's when they decided they needed to change things up a bit they'd basically taken the thrash thing about as far as they could Mm-hmm. Um, so they hired a new producer, a guy named Bob Rock, who is more known for bands like Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, like these kind of pop metal bands. He had also worked with Aerosmith. They hired him to produce their next album, which was the self-titled Black Album, which came out in October of 1990. This album featured a much more polished sound, a much more commercial sound. It, no more like 10-minute epic, you know, thrash, you know, crazy time changes, stuff like that. It was, you know, band songs like Inter Sandman and things like that. This album was massive it cost a million dollars to record it basically ended three of their marriages because it took forever for them to record it ended up hitting number one in the first week of release it sold up 650,000 albums in its first week it would go on to be certified 16 times platinum uh, which means it sold 16 million albums wow um it's to this day it's their it's their biggest breakout hit as I was just talking about, a lot of the fans to this day are mad about that album because they fucking so sell out. Whatever. Not all metal fans. <laughs> not all metal fans. I mean, most of them. <laughs> Let's be Hashtag not all metal fans. But yeah, so the album was huge, just super massive. I mean, everyone knows Inner Salmon. Everyone knows Sad But True. You know, um, yeah. Nothing else matters. The Unforgiven. Like, you know, this was just like hit after hit after hit off of this album. They went on tour. They toured for years. Uh, they first started off with the Wherever We May Roam tour. And then they decided to join up with Guns N' Roses for the Guns N' Roses and Metallica Stadium Tour. Oof. Yeah. So that's Metallica. You know, okay. pretty standard, like hard working band, you know, they kind of they finally hit it big. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Guns N' Roses. A little bit of a different story (laughs) with these guys. So, William Bruce Axel Rose Jr. was born February 6, 1962. He was raised in Lafayette, Indiana, the oldest child of Sharon and William Bruce Rose. His mother was 16 when he was born. Wow. His father was 20, and his father was a, quote, troubled and charismatic local delinquent. How old was his dad when he was born? Okay. Obviously an unplanned pregnancy. Uh, mm-hmm. The couple separated when Axel was two, at which point his father promptly abducted him. Ooh. And then supposedly, and trigger warning here, supposedly molested him. I don't know any details mm-hmm. on that. And then somehow Axel's mom, it's this time he's still William, uh, she got him back and the dad just fucked off from Lafayette and basically was out of his kid's life after that. She turned around and remarried a guy named Stephen L. Bailey. So William Bruce Rose Jr. was renamed William Bruce Bailey, I believe. They ended up having several more kids. They were a very super religious family again. Uh, whereas James Hetfield's family were Christian scientists, the Bailey family were like Pentecostals. And so this was Axel's quote later. He said, We'd have televisions one week, 
them. I stepped out, would throw them out because they were satanic. I wasn't allowed to listen to music. Women were evil. Everything was evil. So, you know, yeah. uh, we all know, um, and I'm going to get into it, like all the ways in which Axl Rose is kind of a problematic human being. And yeah. I think you can sort of see some of the, the seeds for a lot of this here. Yeah. Also, he never knew until he was 17 years old. He thought that Stephen Bailey was his actual birth dad. He'd never even heard of William Rose Sr. until... You know, he was a late teenager and then found out that his father, his birth father, William Rosina, had actually been murdered in Illinois by an acquaintance and his body has never been found. And I was like, don't go down that rabbit hole, but I super want to go down that rabbit hole. I might have to look up into that later. After finding out this truth about his dad and with this, sounds like just terrible relationship with his stepdad, who he has said was abusive. He has claimed, I'm not sure if this is confirmed but i know that at least axel has claimed that his stepdad had been sexually abusing one of his sisters so axel not the most well-behaved dude he became a delinquent in lafayette uh he ended up being arrested more than 20 times on everything from public intoxication to assault finally before the authorities could charge him as a quote habitual criminal he noped out of there to la in 1982 uh once he was in la he started a band called axel that's when he started using axel as his name so axel is part like is part of his given name no it was a nickname that he said i think he basically he over time he was like he didn't want to anything to do with his stepdad so he stopped using his stepdad's name that's why he went back to using rose okay. even though it sounds like his birth dad wasn't great either yeah um and i think he didn't want to use his birth dad's first name so he started calling himself axel okay. which was named after this band he was in okay. he actually legally changed his name to william axel rose in 1986 i think Okay. Well, he did have a childhood friend, a guy named Izzy Stradlin. Mm-hmm. I think his real name was like Jeff Eisen, I think. Okay. Um, but he went he goes by Izzy Stradlin. He had moved to LA a couple years before Axel. Uh, and when Axel got out there, they formed the band Hollywood Rose. So this is where I was saying, like, it's a little bit different than the Metallica story. It wasn't the ad in the paper. This actually is like childhood friends. Yeah, you know, yeah. Forming a band. Well, at the time, Izzy was living with a guy named Tracy Guns, who was the, I believe, the lead singer, maybe guitarist as well, of the band L.A. Guns. Okay. Now, whereas Metallica, again, was, like, very much part of the, like, t-shirt and jeans, scruffy, thrash metal dude thing, mm-hmm. you know, this was the L.A. glam rock scene. Like, this was the scene that gave birth to Motley Crue, Poison, all these bands. Yeah. The Hollywood Rose, they were a glam band. L.A. Guns was a glam band. L.A. Guns was looking for a new vocalist, which makes me think, I guess Tracy Guns was probably the guitarist. So Izzy suggested Axel. They joined together, ended up forming the band Guns N' Roses by combining the you know Hollywood Rose and then mm-hmm. L.A. Guns. The original lineup was Rose and Stradlin, and then along with Tracy Guns, Rob Gardner, and Oli Beich, who are all from L.A. Guns. Okay. But Axel, early on, not getting along with anybody, being a big pain in the ass. So here's a quote from Tracy Guns. He says, Axel got into an argument with our manager, and our manager fired Axel, but we all lived together, so it was all really weird. <laughs> he says, so that same night, he got fired. We started Guns N' Roses, and I called Izzy the next day and said, hey, we're going to start this new band called Guns N' Roses. Do you want in? It was as simple as that. No pain or cocaine involved. Other names they considered using were Heads of Amazon and okay. AIDS. Because 
Of course they did. Yeah. So they formed the band, Guns N' Roses, immediately fired this Ole Bache, uh, replaced okay. him with Duff McKagan, and then they recorded their first rehearsal with Duff, ended up coming up with three songs out of it. The songs Don't Cry, Think About You, and Anything Goes. Hmm. They played their first show at the Troubadour in 1985. They're planning to record an EP, but again, Axl Rose can't get along with anybody. So he and Tracy Guns got in a big fight. Guns left the band. They replaced him with a dude named Saul Hudson, better known as Slash, from their previous band, Hollywood Rose. So he had been the guitarist for Hollywood Rose. Okay. After Tracy Guns was fired, Gardner left as well. That left nobody from LA Guns left in Guns N' Roses. <laughs> they replaced him with Steven Adler. I believe the LA Guns guys then reformed LA Guns. And that, like LA Guns is still out doing shit today. Like, I looked them up. They're like, they have like a new album came out a year or two ago. So Guns N' Roses, kind of like Metallica, immediately were like... People were like, ooh, this is something. Mm-hmm. One thing I think Guns N' Roses had that a lot of these glam bands had is they just, they had, there was like a, there was a nastiness to them, like a mm. darkness to their energy that was, like, it wasn't just like party rock. Like there was, there was, mm. there was like a meanness. If you go back and listen to Appetite for Destruction and compare it to like Rat or Poison, like it's yeah. like, you guys had some attitude, you know? Yeah. But anyway, so people were noticing them. They became mainstays of the Hollywood club scene. They're regularly playing the Troubadour and the Roxy. They ultimately caught the notice of Geffen Records in 1986, who signed them for $75,000. They'd actually turned down a much more lucrative offer from Chrysalis Records because Chrysalis wanted to change their image and sound. Huh. Like, okay. Why? Yeah, why sign them? Why, yeah, why? What are you doing? But anyway. <laughs> You're like, we want a boy band, but you guys will do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you hear those kind of stories in, in like the record industry all the time. And I'm just like, yeah. what? Did, did you... Did you like them when you heard them? Like, what are you doing? But anyway, so they released, uh, once they got on Geffen, they recorded a four-song EP called Live Like a Suicide and released that in December of that year. I think it was actually like live live shit like a suicide but it had all the like symbols for like a cuss word okay fans have over the years have just started calling it live like a suicide okay they released in december of that year the whole thing was just they wanted the record label wanted to keep interest in the band while they were went off to record their first album they considered a bunch of different producers for the album so like they were thinking about getting the guitarist from the band nazareth a guy named manny charlton they actually almost got paul stanley from kiss they ultimately hired a guy named mike clink and then they began recording the album Appetite for Destruction in January of 1987. It was released in July of that year. The first single was It's So Easy. It was only released in the UK, and it made it to number 84 on the UK singles chart. Their next single was Welcome to the Jungle. This was their first US single. Nobody noticed it. No one gave a shit. Okay. Basically, a year went by. Nobody gave a shit about the band. <laughs> Finally, David Geffen went to MTV and was like, can you just show this Welcome to the Jungle music video? Yeah. And they're like, okay. I mean, we'll, we'll, throw Ugh, it on. Fine. we'll throw it on at like four in the morning. How's that? So it debuted on MTV at 4 a.m. Wow. And immediately people started calling and requesting it. Of course. Um, so, and I will say like, I'm not a big Guns N' Roses fan, but Appetite for Destruction is, it's like a pretty solid fucking album. 
You know, uh, fun story. Guns N' Roses was the first CD I ever owned. Really? It was the first vinyl record I ever owned. Interesting. <laughs> yep. I mean, I think everybody, like it ended up selling, I think 30 million copies or something. Wow. And I mean, everyone had it, but like, yeah, like I said, I, I have, I have my problems with Guns N' Roses, but it's hard to argue with that record. Yeah. So welcome to the jungle. Like people, all of a sudden people are requesting it. They ended up featuring the song in the 1988 Dirty Harry movie, The Hmm. Deadpool. Okay. (laughs) And the band actually had a cameo in the movie, but where things really like took off for them was their next single. Sweet Child of Mine. Okay. That was released as a second U.S. single. It was their breakout hit. It was written for Axel's then-girlfriend, Erin Everly. Okay. She was, I think, a model, and she was the daughter of Don Everly from the Everly Brothers. Huh. Um, fun fact. Slash said about the song, he said, I hated that song with a huge passion for the longest time, and it turned out to be our hugest hit, so it goes to show what I know. No. <laughs> It's to this day, it's their highest charting song. It's the only song that ever hit number one on mm. the charts. So after Sweet Child of Mine hit, they re released Welcome to the Jungle. That went all the way to number seven. And then their third single was Paradise City. That hit number five. So, like I said, the album has sold like 30 million. They've sold 30 million albums, uh, 18 million just in the US. To this day, it's the most successful debut album in music history. After extensive touring, and by the way, Axel was a problem from the start. Yeah, it sounds like. So, like, after their first tour, they put out the EP GNR Lies in 1988. So, this was that initial Live Like a Suicide EP, and then they tacked on four new acoustic tracks. Okay. It hit number two on the album charts. The song Patience was a big hit. That's the one where he's whistling. Yep. Yep. But it was super controversial. I don't know if you remember this, but it's got the song One in a Million is like blatantly racist, xenophobic, homophobic. Wow. And people at the time, I remember trying to be like, well, he's, you know, he, he, it's not Axel. He's he's like inhabiting a character, blah, blah, blah. And he's using the N word. But they're like, it's not really him. Well, this is what he had to say later he's about his use of the N word. He said, well, it's a word to describe somebody that's basically a pain in your life, a problem. The word, I'm not going to say it, but. Uh N-word doesn't necessarily mean black. He also said it was okay to use the word because, like, NWA was using it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. (laughs) And then later he he did admit, he was like, well, when I wrote that song, I was just mad because some black guys mugged me. I mean, that's a paraphrase, but you get the gist. (laughs) So... That's that's great. Good 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 on you, Axel. Um, he also defended the homophobia by saying he was quote pro heterosexual and said he had had bad experiences with gay men. And it's just occurring to me that he's from Lafayette, Indiana, which is not far from Chicago. Like he one hundred percent could have been at that disco demolition night because it sounds like he was like the target fucking audience. Like, um. <laughs> So, yeah, like I said, he was he was right away the problem. November 1987, this is before the album even came out. They were doing a show in Atlanta where he assaulted multiple security guards. The police had to hold him backstage, and they had to send a roadie up to do the lead vocals. Uh, <laughs> he almost caused two riots at two shows in New York in 1988. He was, oh, whenever he'd go on stage, they were always going on stage late. He would quit, you know, he'd get mad and he'd leave. He was always threatening to quit the band. Like, he'd be on stage being like, if Blow 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 doesn't start da- stop dancing with Mr. Brownstone, I'm leaving the band, which is, I guess, saying people are using drugs. Oh, who knows? Two fans were actually crushed to death during their Monsters of Rock show in 1989. Shit. Yep. But he, they're like the biggest 
rock band in the world. Like they're blowing away Metallica. They're blowing yeah. away Motley Crue. This is right before like grunge and all that shit hit. So this is like yeah. the very end of that like glam metal LA scene era. Yeah. They ended up firing Steven Adler, who was the drummer from the band, I think because he was doing drugs. In 1990, they recorded the Use Your Illusion albums one and two. These albums were released on the same day, September 17th, 1991. They debuted at number one and number two. These albums were fucking huge. I'm sure you remember. Like, no, that every... was that was my first CD. That was Use, Use Your, Your Illusion, Illusion one and yeah. two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I got I had Appetite for Destruction for. I think my brother got me the record. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I mean, the song November Rain was like everywhere, <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> and it had that get away video, and everybody mm-hmm. was like, "What does it mean?" And I think it was like the most expensive or one of the most expensive music videos of the time. Just so funny because like if you watch it now, piano. I know it's so fucking corny and like <laughs> and and again yeah. similar with like what happened with metallica with the black album some of the initial fans of the band started kind of turning on them because it's mm-hmm. like you lost your edge it's self-indulgent you know they didn't like all the orchestration and stuff i'm not a fan of those albums particularly but i can listen to them and be like i mean they're fucking solid like just the musicality was pretty fucking impressive i think by the time those albums came out i even as like a kid i knew enough about how big of a dick axel rose was and i think i just kind of lost interest in them Mm -hmm. but yeah those albums were fucking massive they ended up selling like 35 million worldwide they debuted on the same day debuting at number one and number two so they took the first two that's the only time that's ever happened in history i think And then they went on their Use Your Illusion tour, which included 192 dates in 27 countries. In July of 1991, at a show in Missouri, Axel saw a fan filming the show with a video camera. He stopped singing, demanded the guards take the camera. You can watch this on YouTube. He demanded the security guards take the camera. And then he was like, fuck it, I'll take it. And he jumps into the audience and starts beating on the fan. After being pulled from the audience by the crew, he gets back on stage and he's like, well, thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home. And he's slams his microphone on the ground and when you watch it he's such a little fucking crybaby he's just like yeah. and like throws his microphone it's on a, the ground it's a full tantrum it's a full tantrum so this led to another riot where dozens of people were injured so like Guns N' Roses had already caused a few riots yeah really Axl Rose had already caused a few riots yeah this of course leads us to the Guns N' Roses Metallica stadium tour so yeah. low background on the tour itself May 92, Lars Ulrich and Slash held a press conference to announce a joint stadium tour. If you watch the uh, Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica documentary, you can tell the rest of Metallica were like, really? But Lars was like, Lars was like good friends with Guns N' Roses. Who's like, this will be great. Um, and everyone else was like, uh, we'll see. It was supposed to, it was going to be a short tour. It's just going to be 20 stops between the U.S. and Canada. It kicked off July 17th, 1992 at uh, Washington, D.C.'s RFK Stadium. Parts of the tour, if you watch that Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica, documentary they do kind of cover this tour a fair amount Mm. um so kicks off on july 17th well on july 21st during guns and roses set in pontiac michigan axel just started puking on stage and then left to give him credit he did yeah he did return like a few minutes later he apologized and then they continued so you know uh, as axel rose moments go that one wasn't too bad 
Um, July 29th, he had, quote, severe pain in his throat. He continued the show at the Giants Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. But then he got smacked in the nuts by a cigarette lighter. (laughs) Someone threw a cigarette lighter from the audience. He got hit in the nuts when he was doing Knocking on Heaven's Door, which is like one of their, (laughs) like, ballads. (laughs) So he, like, ran backstage to conserve his energy, quote, unquote. And Duff McKagan, the bassist, had to take over for the rest of the show. Singing, yeah, <laughs> I just love it. Like, knock it out, Evans, or smack right in the nuts. <laughs> well, and you know, whoever threw it was like, fucking right. Like, <laughs> even if they were a Guns N' Roses fan, like, they were like, yeah, fucking nailed it, <laughs> fucking bullseye. <laughs> I had Axel Rose in the balls. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, the tour is going, yeah, Metallica was they're just doing their thing, Guns N' Roses, they're, sh- they're throwing wild parts these backstage they're burning through money they had a big lavish stage show compared to metallica's which is metallica out there fucking being metallica yeah this leads to the battle of montreal okay or or colloquially known as the battle of montreal i think there's an actual battle of montreal from like the war of 1812 or something okay not what i'm talking about august 8 1992 at the olympic stadium in montreal which is called the big o by montreal natives seats 54,666 people, every single seat, uh, have been sold out for the show. So we're talking about 55,000 fans there. Yeah. The opening band were one of my all-time favorites, Faith No More. Faith No More had just released their album Angel Dust. But they're, like, if you know Faith No More, they're a real weird choice to open, like, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, because Faith No More, they're just odd like they're just a real quirky strange band yeah and like apparently there were no video screens set up for them the sound quality was really bad so i think a lot of the fans that were just like at faith no more and just like what's happening here so people started like leaving during their set went and to buy snacks and beer and stuff but faith no more actually managed to finish their set which neither of the headlining bands could could claim later mm. <laughs> so metallica set metallica followed starting with their song uh creeping death from ride the lightning i think they played for like an hour and things are going great they're fucking up they're killing it and then they go into the song fade to black and if anyone knows fade to black it's one of their pretty songs it's like this like power ballady kind of like starts uh-huh. real slow and then it goes into this guitar solo like before you know before the song really gets going and then right after kirk hammett's guitar solo james hetfield missed his cue took a wrong step on stage and basically stepped into a pyrotechnic display like i think he stepped onto like a flame pot and just blew and i think and if i remember correctly from the um the documentary the year and a half in life of metallica it was a magnesium it's like a magnesium flare Mm. getting burned by magnesium is like no fucking good yeah so here's a quote this is from uh the website the metal voice which is i think a blog of a dude in canada talking about shows he went to and he's talking about how he was at the show and he says then it happened intro to fade to black build up to a wave of pyro and the sound of a guitar going way out of tune and then the band disappears and a whole lot of nothing for a good 10 minutes i immediately said to my musician friend something's wrong the quote out of tune sound we had heard were james strings and guitar melting from the pyro blast oh my god james had accidentally or melting from the pyroblast james had accidentally stood in when he missed a cue his hand had been burned to the bone so this is james hatfield's quote later he says i'm burnt all my arm my hand completely down to the bone the side of my face hair is gone part of my back i watched the skin just rising things going wrong Oof. yeah Ugh, that's so awful that it's 
awful. So he was immediately rushed off stage. The band stops playing. And then James ended up punching a security guy. He says, the security guys are kind of walking around and one guy bumps into my hand. I just lost it. I screamed and punched him right the nuts. Uh, (laughs) this is pain i've never felt my whole life and it won't go away so he's rushed to the hospital the band returns to the stage with a french translator after about 10 minutes and lars ulrich gets up i think lars and kirk go up to the microphone and basically explain what happened i want to show you a quick video okay this is just of of that Things started going wrong about halfway through Metallica's set when a stage prop exploded, inflicting second-degree burns on James Hetfield's arms and legs. The band was forced to terminate its set, promising the crowd it would return to play a makeup show. And Hetfield was taken to a nearby hospital for treatment. There was an incident with uh, the pyrotechnics. Unfortunately, James uh, is on his way to the hospital right now, and we're very sorry, but we can't continue the concert for you guys tonight. But we promise you one thing for Metallica, and you know that we always good by our words. We will come back and finish our concert and play again for you as soon as we can within the next p- couple of months. Thank you, Montreal. We're sorry, okay? Thanks for being so patient. Thanks a lot. So I think the the important thing to note about that is notice the crowd's reaction. Yeah. Like, they're not booing. No, no. They're not mad. Everyone's cheering. Like, everyone understands what happened. Nobody's fault. It was just a freak accident. Yeah. They did return later that year and performed two half-priced concerts to make up for it. Okay. This is a a quote, again, from the Metal Voice. This is, the band and crowd reacted cool and professionally, and things were made right after the fact. Metallica, who were always beloved in Montreal, became heroes that night. Mm. So... They had to end early. This meant GNR would have to step up and like carry the brunt of the show and like carry yeah. the flag for rock and roll and just rescue the night. And the yeah. spoiler alert, none of that happened. None so. of that happened. They did not. <laughs> they did not. Um, so Montreal record producer, a guy named Donald Tarleton, said, quote, the tremendous opportunity that Axel missed was when Hatfield got hurt, he could have been the hero of the century come out to the audience and said, listen, my comrade brother in arms has fallen. They can't finish their show. So I'm going to give you a show to remember. Well, he did give a show to remember just for all of the wrong reasons. So I've seen two different, I've seen some people say it took them more than two hours to hit the stage. I've seen somewhere else. Someone said it took them three hours to get on stage. Fuck that. By the time they got on stage, there was a quote, Altamont vibe in the audience. If anyone knows the story of Altamont, not. It was not good. good. Yeah. So they opened with the song. It's so easy. And Mr. Brownstone off of appetite for destruction. And then they went into a cover of live and let die the paul mccartney Uh song according to the montreal gazette newspaper it says although already there were problems the band was unfocused and axel kept muttering into his mic and stalking the wings rather than center stage apparently he was like complaining that like he couldn't hear the monitors were bad was the feedback you know and then the the montreal gazette continues says we're not even going to address axel's rumored occult fear of bad juju happening in cities beginning with m because the bad juju was wearing a bandana and kilt and strutting around bitching about monitors and band members he was the walking bad juju this is like a famous Mm. thing about axel rose is that he had he was like into the occult or something and some psychic had told him he can never play shows in cities that begin with m so he would always refuse to play these shows and like this show in montreal was like the only time he's ever played a show in a city that begins with m i don't know if that's true but that's like the famous story so a fan in this montreal gazette 
news article this was like way after the fact you know this was kind of a retrospective article a fan a guy named jean francois Blay, i think he says we were all taking drugs lsd so when guns and roses arrive on the stage the band looked a little bit weird axel rose was singing songs on the edge of the stage like he was totally bored to be there so he continued to complain about the sound quality, the monitor in his ear, the mood in the stadium is getting darker and darker. Then finally, after nine songs, Axel sits down on one of the monitors and says, in case anybody here is interested, this will be our last show for a long time. They played one more song, after which Axel shouted, I'm out of here, and slammed his mic down on the stage Again. and left. Again. The band just kind of like, were like, what? And then just kind of followed him off stage. Wow. Maybe coincidentally, maybe not. They played for about 45 minutes, which was the contractually contractually was the minimum amount of time they could perform without suffering financial penalties. Okay. So this meant they were not required to offer any refunds or any compensation to the crowd. They just had to hit that 45 minute mark. They had to hit the 45 minute mark. Everything else was gravy. Exactly. Uh, so here you have Metallica promising to come back. They played these two half price shows. Not so much with <laughs> Guns N' Roses. So after a few minutes, the house lights go up. The and the audience is just told to leave. So this is from that Metal Voice blog. He says, here we go. People have waited two hours plus for a 45-minute horribly performed set. Mm. Strains of fuck you, Guns N' Roses could be heard. People started throwing cups, trays, etc. Then, like army ants, people started attacking the stage and the merch booths. Security could not handle the waves of angry, ripped-off, tired, hot fans looking to extract revenge. Even some small fires were starting, which was my cue to leave the building. Yeah. <laughs> No fucking shit. So, yeah. like I said, 55,000 concert goers there, at least 2,000 of them uh, rioted. They smashed up the stadium hallways. They started burning band t-shirts like in the stadium. Then they started pouring out into the street. They were flipping over cars, smashing cars. They flipped over police cruisers. They started looting the nearby stores or just trashing the stores. They ultimately, the big O, you know, the Olympic Stadium suffered about a half million dollars in damage. Another hundred thousand dollars in damage was done outside. 300 police were called along with another 400 security personnel from the venue the police showed up dressed in riot gear they had to use tear gas to dispel the crowd you actually see some of this footage in that year and the half in the life of metallica documentary and it's like yep no that's that's a full-on fucking riot yeah uh, dozens of people were arrested no one died but there were injuries at least three police officers 10 concert goers um needed medical attention i saw it said one quote young girl but I, I couldn't find out what this means so i don't know if she was like 10 or if she was like 21 or something right but, or if she was like 17 or 17 or something but like one quote young girl was thrown through a glass display case she wasn't even there for the concert uh she'd just been a bystander fuck yeah. So Metallica, they're at the hospital. They're waiting yeah. to see, like, is James going to die or what? Yeah. Right? The rioters are tearing up fucking Montreal. So what's Guns N' Roses doing? Well, they're partying backstage. Of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> okay. Aftermath. So Metallica on this tour, I think the tour continued. This tour with Guns N' Roses continued. And then Metallica went back onto their Wherever They May Roam tour. They only had to cancel one concert. James ended up returning to the stage. He couldn't play guitar and his arm is wrapped in a big old bandage. Again, you see this footage in the documentary. You know, like mm -hmm. His arm is all bandaged up and he's singing and they had to hire a filling guitarist to play rhythm. He said, so his is his quote. He says, it sucks. You're up there and you're singing, but a lot of our songs have some pretty long instrumental bits. It's like, what the hell am I going to do here? 
head yeah. backstage, do some laundry. <laughs> you can only be a cheerleader for so much, and it looks kind of silly. <laughs> yeah. But he fucking did it. He got yeah. back up and fucking did it. Metallica actually made money on this tour. GNR did not. They burned through all their money. They had a big lavish show. They ended up, they continually had to pay fines for showing up late or playing late. Um, and then they had these huge parties. Um, just a few weeks later, U2 came and played Montreal. I think they're mm-hmm. on their Zuropa tour. Uh-huh. Um, four songs in, Bono stops and says, what time is it? We gotta go. And then he just laughs and continues. To oh, God. <laughs> but it's just clearly making fun of Axl Rose. The members of Metallica have, over the years, not been uh, particularly... They said some nasty things about Guns N' Roses on this mm-hmm. tour. One of the more diplomatic quotes I found was from Kirk Hammett, who's always like the diplomatic guy in Metallica. Mm-hmm. When asked if Metallica would have ever done something like that, he said, never in a million years. We're not that type of band. What can you do? Those guys insulate themselves from opinions as well as people. We're a lot more grounded, I think. Guns N' Roses has never apologized for what happened, and they are, to this day, permanently banned from ever playing in the Olympic Stadium in Montreal. That is the story of the Battle of Montreal. And probably the dumbest rock riot that has ever happened. (laughs) That's like, that's, there's like just two many variables for Mm -hmm. anything where there's like too many people like that Mm -hmm. like people losing their minds shit going wrong you know bad management so there's only like one fucking exit open or something and like well yeah i mean you you hear the stories about like you know the the who concert i think in cincinnati where all the people like things can go yeah really really tits up um real tits and, up. yeah and it's probably a large reason as to why i'm not a huge like mm. concert goer yeah um but also i just don't like well them. yeah because you also even at the smaller concerts you have things like the rhode island nightclub fire yeah and i'm yeah. like i'm too little you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it's like i'm begging to be crushed by something so right well and you wouldn't even be able to see anything like i can't no, like, like- <laughs> I can't I can't like I can't be close to the stage or anything I've got to be like on the hill yeah no, that's the nice thing about being like six foot four is whenever I go to a show in a small club or whatever I can always stand in the back I'm not yeah. one of the dicks who likes to be like the tall guy standing up front blocking everyone else's view mm-hmm. I always stand in the back try to make room for other people to be able to see but yeah. I always feel bad for like the short people there who are like you tell they're on their tiptoes trying to see between like someone's elbow and armpit or something like do you remember Remember when uh, you like we went to go see March Fourth here in Albuquerque? Yeah. And you and you and Coleman created like a tall guy barricade kind of around me. <laughs> that's right. That I so that I could see. Um, yeah. yeah. That's that's kind of what I needed. Uh, right. Wow. Right. What a mess. Yeah. A mess. Total mess. And I mean, like you know, I think if you look at like the fates of the two bands, it just tells you like different philosophies. Because you have Metallica, they just kept going. They pissed mm-hmm. off all their fans uh, with the Black Album, and then really pissed them off a couple years later with the Load Album where they totally changed their sound mm. um but i it's actually load is one of my favorite metallica albums and mm-hmm. i still have fights with metallica fans about that to this day but they're still going they haven't like they have a new album coming out i think in just a couple months guns and roses like you know they put out the spaghetti incident a couple years later That's which right. was their covers album and then they just kind of crashed and burned and then like axel rose was supposedly still doing metallica it took him like 20 years to do the chinese democracy album which nobody gave a fuck about yeah. 
I think they're maybe sort of back together now, but like they're definitely just kind of limping along, you know. Yeah. Put out three classic albums and then just kind of flamed out. But it's when you have like that kind of person at the center. And again, dude had a rough upbringing. Like there's yeah. a lot of things you can point to, but the guy's just an asshole. Like I'm sorry. Axel Rose is just an asshole. Well, I think at a certain point, like, and I mean, granted, during the time period, right? Like this was not a thing, but you have somebody who's had this really rough upbringing and mm. then sort of skyrockets to fame and right. has all of the resources to get his shit handled. You know mm. what I mean? Whether it's like therapy, substance abuse, like whatever the fuck. And didn't. Didn't, didn't do anything. I mean, I, he was beating girlfriends of allegedly, if I remember correctly. I don't remember details, yeah. but yeah, you know, just I mean, just yeah. Like I can appreciate Guns N' Roses on a musical level. I don't like just the the culture that was around Guns N' Roses at the time. Yeah, and I've just I've never. I don't even think he's that great a vocalist, to be honest. I've just never been on the Axl Rose like yeah train. Yeah. yeah. So. Anyway, well. there you go. There's, All right. There's the Battle of Montreal. There's uh, the Battle of Montreal. There's Disco Demolition Night. Yeah, uh, like your your story, like there's some real like there's some meat to like, you know, getting into that history. And with mine is just like, man, like all you can say is like, what a dick. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's yeah. not like much social commentary you can make about it other than like, yeah. man, dude is a douchebag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. there you go. There you go. That's the episode. That's all we wrote. As always, subscribe, rate, review. If you listen to us on apple Podcasts, leave us a review you can also review us on spotify um as we've been saying we do like hearing from you seeing what you guys think about it and you know until next time stay weird stay curious bye bye so listen friends we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing